I invite you to take your Bibles, this wonderful, infallible record, and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 10, and we find ourselves this week in verses 1 and 2, having made our way to this point over many months, and we look forward to continue to go verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew to glean all the truths that we possibly can from God's precious word. Last week, you will remember that we were looking into the life of the apostles that are listed here. We began with Simon, whose name became Peter, and we saw how the Lord shaped him. He took his exaggerated self-confidence and shaped it into a man of humble dependence. The Lord came into his life and took his vacillating love and all of his cowardice and and transformed all of that into a steadfast love and boldness that would eventually even take him to a cross. We saw how the Lord tempered his impetuosity and turned it into a Christ-like restraint. And we saw how he became a man of meekness that harnessed all of that zeal with self-control. And then we also looked at the second apostle in the list, Andrew. We saw how that he was a quiet, faithful, humble, behind-the-scenes kind of servant. And we saw how he advanced the kingdom in that unique way with that unique personality. He never complained about his role. He never complained about his position. But he was merely a man who was satisfied to serve in obscurity. And now, of course, he is exalted in glory. Let's look at the first two verses here. And we want to continue now this morning with the next two men on the list. But let's begin in verse 1, Matthew chapter 10. And having summoned his twelve disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. And now today, we will look at James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. These two men, of course, will round out the first four, and yet I want you to remember that it was primarily Peter, James, and John that were the three that were the most intimate with the Lord, the most intimate companions in that inner circle where the Lord invested himself the most, shaping these men, as he did all of them except Judas, into his glorious image. Examples to all of us. And so as we look at the lives of James and John this morning, I hope you will examine your own hearts and learn much about yourself and the potential that we all have in Christ Jesus. James and John, they were brothers. They were the sons of Zebedee. When I was a little boy, we would play different Bible games with my folks. And I remember one of the questions my dad was at, would ask was, who was the father of the Zebedee boys? And I would sit there and think a minute, and I finally figured that one out. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they were from a prominent family. And I'm going to summarize much of what we would read in the scripture. There's some evidence in church early church records that Zebedee might have been even a Levite and closely related to the high priest. James, of course, was the oldest of the two, the older brother, and perhaps he thought he should have been the most prominent. But uh, God gave that to Peter, the most prominent of the three and actually of the twelve, as we learned last week. But scripture would indicate that James was basically second in command next to Peter. Now, while James had many sinful issues that he needed to deal with in his life, as we all do, most of them fell under two rather large categories, broad areas in his life that the Lord needed to deal with, that the Lord needed to shape. And we want to look at these this morning. The first one that we see as we look at the life of James is that he had to learn to rule his emotions rather than them ruling him. Can you identify with that? 
learning to rule your emotions. In Proverbs 14 and verse 29, we read, he who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly. And we also read in Proverbs 22 and verse 24 and other passages that we're not even to associate with those that are given to a hot temper, lest we find a snare for ourselves. Well, as we summarize many Bible passages in Scripture, we see that James and his brother John were both what we would call hard-charging kinds of guys. They were in-your-face type of men. They were fervent, hot-blooded, passionate, fiery, zealous, the go-ahead-and-make-my-day kind of guys. In fact, Jesus nicknamed them the sons of thunder. That says it all, doesn't it? Sons of thunder. By the way, you might remember last week we learned how Jesus gave Simon the new name of Peter, which means rock, to help shape his personality from his vacillating cowardice to a steadfast faith. Well, perhaps Jesus did something similar with James and John, calling them sons of thunder, to gently and maybe even humorously admonish them to harness their passions and tone down the rhetoric a little bit. James was impatient. He was outspoken. Very similar to Peter. He was a ready, fire, aim kind of guy. We can see this dangerous and sinful aspect of his character in Luke chapter 9. So let's look at Luke chapter 9. We're going to look at a few passages of Scripture this morning to better understand what God did in these remarkable yet ordinary men. Luke chapter 9. You may remember that they were traveling with Jesus through Samaria. And we find this scene being unfolded for us beginning in verse 51. Luke 9 verse 51. And it came about when the days were approaching for his ascension. That he, referring to Jesus, resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. And they did not receive him, because he was journeying with his face toward Jerusalem. Let me give you the context here. The region of Samaria was in that day, and in many cases still is today, a region in Israel filled with pagan idolatry. The Jews had intermarried with the pagans when the remnant of them went back from the Assyrian captivity. They had developed the ecumenical type of spirit where they would embrace a mixture of paganism, mix it with Judaism. And unfortunately, that created what the Jews would consider a mongrel race and a mongrel religion. And so the Jews despised these people. They were considered unclean. And in fact, they would walk many miles. Those in the northern part would walk many miles through the desert to just avoid going through that region of the country. So naturally, there was a mutual disdain and even hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. In fact, Scripture records many examples of the wickedness that existed in that region. You'll remember the stories of, of Ahab and, and Jezebel and her her wicked son, um, Ahaziah, who, who tried to capture and kill his nemesis, the prophet Elijah. And you will remember that when the soldiers came to get Elijah, that Elijah called down fire from heaven and they were utterly incinerated. They were reduced to ashes instantly. You can read that story in Second Kings 1. But with that history as context, keep in mind now, Jesus is on his way now to Jerusalem. He's on the way to the cross. And he is going to pass right through this region. Because he loved these people. And he chose to go through their region, even with a large entourage that was following along with him. And certainly these people needed accommodations. And so, as would typically be the case, they would send people ahead to, to get a motel reservation, to get a place to stay. But the Samaritans thought... <laughs> No way are you people going to stay with us. Now, 
James and John, sons of thunder. What do you think their reaction was? Well, certainly with the precedent of Elijah, they thought they knew exactly how to deal with the the situation. Notice in verse 54, and when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Well, that's what you would expect them to say. But notice verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the son of man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. All the lessons we have to learn. What a humbling rebuke that must have been. It's interesting, isn't it? It says that they went on to another village. So this is how you handle unfair treatment. You just move on. You know, there's profound wisdom in that, obviously. Words of our Lord. If I can pause at this point for just a moment to give you something very practical. You know, folks, it's very easy to let some unkind, some acrimonious, wicked, maybe unfair, hurtful remark or some situation to turn into a beachhead for your own revenge. Where you want to, at least in your heart, call down fire, if not literally. We all know that feeling. You say, yeah, but there's a place for righteous indignation. Not, 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 not when it's your pride that has been wounded and when it is your agenda that has been derailed, as was this case with James and John. Sure, they were concerned about the honor of the Lord, but they had another bone to pick as well. You know, we must all learn to examine our motives and even with right motives, we need to learn to choose our battles wisely, don't we? You hear me say from from time to time, don't throw your dog in every fight, save him for the big ones. You know, if you throw him in every fight, he'll be too exhausted to fight at all. And then sometimes he'll merely be ignored when he does fight because he's just gained a reputation of being a fighter. So I've learned to choose my battles A lot more wisely as I mature, these gray hairs, I'm sure, have something to do with that. You learn which ones you're willing to die for and which ones you're willing to walk away from. And you know what? Most of them we need to walk away from. We need to move on to another village. You know, we should seldom get angry. But when we must, we want it to be for the Lord's sake and not our own. You know, even when defending the honor of Christ, we must be very, very careful to measure our reactions with the long-suffering nature of the one that we defend. Making sure that his honor is our prize and not our own honor. Well, the point here is that the sons of thunder needed to understand the priority of love in presenting the gospel. They needed to learn to rule their passions, to bridle their emotions to somehow harness their zeal and control it with wisdom. You see, this was not a time for judgment. However, by the way, when Jesus comes again, it will be very different. It will be a time for judgment. But it wasn't this time. And they needed to learn that. Remember in John 12, verse 46, Jesus said that he had come to seek and to save. And he says, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. By the way, as a footnote, you realize that several years later, as we read through the gospel accounts, we see that Philip, according to Acts in verse chapter eight, and verse five, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And we go on to read, and by the way, certainly many of those people that later on heard Philip would have been there, you know, when they rejected Jesus and the entourage going, I mean, everybody knew about who Jesus was. And anyway, it goes on in that text, it says that the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did for unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed. 
and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. Well, it's a good thing that James and John didn't incinerate them, you know. James and John needed to learn this lesson. You know, if I can put it another way, folks, we've got to be careful that we don't despise the mission field we've been called to love. You know, that's really the danger of moralism, if I can digress for a moment, to come along and as Christians to try to legislate morality and forcing unbelievers who are by nature at war with God. They don't understand the things of God. Their hearts and their minds are, are, are deceived and they have no capacity to please him. Uh, the word of God is foolishness to them, according to 1 Corinthians 2.14. And, and to expect them to somehow embrace the things of God, difference, that's ludicrous. And frankly, it produces two huge problems. One, hypocrisy, and two, resentment. Hypocrisy, because if they do do all of those moral things that look so good, but they don't know Christ, what's that? That's a very dangerous thing to get people to do. But secondly, it can produce resentment because we can end up resenting those people who refuse to embrace those things that we feel and that we know are things that would honor Christ. So we need to be very careful with that. Well, Jesus helped them rule their emotions. And I'm thinking now specifically of James, even though we're going to see that there will be much overlap here with James and John. So James had to learn to temper his zeal and his passion with, the ten, with tenderness and grace. He had to learn the meaning of Exodus 34, 6, where God says that he is merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth. And also the prophet Ezekiel tells us in Ezekiel 33:11 that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And as we will see, James, the son of thunder, learned this lesson very well as the master gently shaped this man who had all of this self-centered religious zeal and uncontrolled passions and turned it into a heart that was filled with selfless sacrifice and tender meekness. Well, not only did he have to learn to rule his emotions, but secondly, he had to Learn to replace selfish ambition with humility. Folks, this is the concept of religious politics, and I hate religious politics where people are always trying to posture themselves to get a bigger church or a bigger audience or, or uh, you know, more books or whatever it might be. Let's look at another text to understand this concept. Go back to Matthew in chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. We begin looking at a story here in verse 20. And here is the story where James and John are going to enlist their their mother, Salome, to secretly ask Jesus if if her sons could sit on his right and left sides when he ascended his throne in the kingdom. Beginning in verse 20 of Matthew 20, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came down to him with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right side, one on your right and one on your left. Well, that was a bold request, was it not? But Jesus answered and said, you do not know what you are asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Referring to that cup of suffering that he would have. And of course, the, the guys must have been there and they said to him, yeah, we are. We're able. Oh, yeah, right. Verse 23, he said to them, my cup, you shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. So you get the scene. Mom comes along. By the way, in, in Mark 10, we, we understand more of the story. But mom comes along. And we know, by the way, that, that um, James and John really put her up to it. 
But she comes along and no doubt because of her affluence, uh, certainly she was able to follow Jesus. We read that in the gospel accounts, able to minister to him. And since her sons were part of that inner circle of Peter, James and John, and and um, since also we know that they had uh, just before that witnessed the um, the transfiguration of, of Christ. And and uh, since dad was a prominent uh, uh, man uh, and they were a prominent family, it's easy to assume that somehow because of all of this, we deserve a special place. And so what ends up happening is out of their pride and out of their selfishness, they seek something that really they did not deserve. Notice what Jesus said in verse 25. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Well, this must have been another hard lesson for them to learn. And isn't it interesting that the other men obviously heard this and it caused strife amongst the apostles. Beloved, again, we must guard ourselves against selfish ambition. You know, it's real easy to, in very subtle and even in our own hearts, justifiable ways to seek some position of, of, of prominence within the church or in wider religious circles. To subtly come along and, and position yourself so you can be seen by more people, so you can be heard by more people or affirmed by more people. And you'll always know you're doing this because when the applause isn't as loud as you think it should have been or the audience is smaller than what you think it should have been, you will find yourself secretly offended down deep within your heart. Feeling as though something is wrong with you people because I am being overlooked and underappreciated. You know, eventually that type of secret resentment will inevitably become public. Eventually it will come out. And when it does, fellowship will be broken, just as it happened here in this case. In verse 24, in hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. Now, I have to quickly add no doubt they secretly desired the same thing. You know, they probably wanted to be you know, on the right and the left hand, too. So probably their displeasure was fueled by their own jealousy. And by the way, whenever you see jealousy in Scripture, you will always see some other words with it. Pride and strife. It's always going to be there. You know, it's, it's fascinating, but just to show you how. Normal these guys were, and I say normal in the sense of sinful, where we can all kind of identify with that. And we, you know, this silly debate, do you realize that this silly debate about who should be first in the kingdom continued to be a hot topic among them all the way up to the Last Supper? I mean, these guys had a lot to learn. But isn't it wonderful to see how God in his grace lovingly shapes men and, as we can see, even women, to be used for his sake. Well, James, along with all the rest, needed to jettison their selfish ambition uh, and replace it with humility. And certainly we know that Peter had to learn that as well. We talked about that last week. In fact, if you remember the passage in 1 Peter 5, 5, remember where Peter warns the persecuted saints of this very thing. And he tells them, you younger men. And he's probably thinking back of these scenarios with all of his buddies, James and John and himself. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders and all of you. In other words, everybody in the church, all of you, he says, clothe yourselves with humility. It's interesting in the Greek, clothe yourselves is, is a Greek term that means to tie on something with a knot. And it was a reference to what slaves would do when they would put on a work apron to begin to humbly serve. And so he says, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, 
but he gives grace to whom? To the humble. So by the Lord's gentle yet firm hand of discipline, James was gradually conformed into the image of the master he served and loved. And he learned to control his emotions and he learned to replace selfish ambition with humble service. And Acts chapter 12 Verses 1 through 3 records the final chapter in James's life. There we read, Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to, to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, which means he was beheaded. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. So we read that James was the first of the twelve, to be killed for his faith. You recall the story, though. Peter escaped. You remember that. And Herod Agrippa I, who was the, the nephew and successor of, of Herod Antipas, who had killed uh, John the Baptist and put Jesus on trial. Herod uh, Agrippa, who did this, was later on eaten by worms, remember, in the amphitheater. Um, I've been to that place, saw where it happened there. You read about it in Acts 12. But there's a fascinating principle that we see threaded through all of these glorious stories. And that is that God loves to shape people who are willing to humble themselves in obedience before him. It's fascinating to read Eusebius, who was an early church historian. He gives an account of James's execution that came from Clement of Alexandria. And this is a great illustration of how God shaped this dear brother in Christ, James, into something very different than what he once originally was. There we read, and I quote, and this is Clement now of Alexandria speaking. Clement says that the one who led James to the judgment seat, when he saw him bearing his testimony, was moved and confessed that he was himself also a Christian. So in other words, this one that turned him in and takes him to the judgment seat comes to a saving knowledge of Christ because James continues to testify boldly. And he goes on to say, They were both, therefore, he says, led away together. And on the way, he begged James to forgive him. And James, after considering a little, said, Peace be with you. And he kissed him. And thus they were both beheaded at the same time. Friends, don't you see the amazing power and the love of Christ now manifested in this seasoned and controlled old apostle? Actually, he wasn't that old when he died, but he had certainly matured. A man who testified boldly and even led others to, to the Savior right up to the very end. John MacArthur summarized his life so poignantly in his book, Twelve Ordinary Men, that I would recommend you all to read. There he says, and I quote, James wanted a crown of glory. Jesus gave him a cup of suffering. He wanted power. Jesus gave him servanthood. He wanted a place of prominence, and Jesus gave him a martyr's grave. He wanted to rule, and Jesus gave him a sword, not to wield, but to be the instrument of his own execution, end quote. And now, friends, James is in the presence of the Lord. All of the shaping process is over, and he stands in his presence blameless with great joy. What about his brother John? Well, again, he was the youngest of the two. The second part of the dynamic duo, the other son of thunder who shared the same traits as Big Brother. He, by the way, of course, is the human author of the Gospel of John and the three epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and also the Revelation, the final book in the Bible. And we know that next to Luke and Paul, the Holy Spirit inspired him to write more of the New Testament than anyone else. This, of course, provides us with much information that helps us accurately assess the ways Jesus shaped his life. He was commonly referred to as the 
Or I should say he commonly referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's interesting. He's giving Christ the glory for loving such a man. And even in his gospel, he never mentions himself by name. He never exalted himself. That's very different than many self-seeking servants who are quick to tell you their academic pedigrees and list of accomplishments or the organizations to which they belong to somehow impress you. But John never drew attention to himself. In fact, when we read the accounts of John, we see that it was always Peter that did the talking and John was somehow behind the scenes there. In fact, the first reference he made of himself was in John 13, 23. There we read, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now, I want to clarify something. It's interesting. If you look at medieval art, you will see how they unfortunately pick up on this tender, loving side of John and that alone. And they distort it, unfortunately, and they often portray him as some docile, kind of effeminate sissy. And I resent those types of caricatures. They portray him as a man that that is staring at Jesus with with a sentimental kind of self-effacing gaze type of thing. And friends, nothing could be further from the truth. Like all fishermen of that day, this man was a rugged outdoorsman. He was not some scrawny, pusillanimous wimp like he's often betrayed or, or, or depicted. Sadly, men of that kind of demeanor betray a heart of self-worship and, frankly, such idolatry is a life-dominating sin because it blurs the God-intended distinctions between maleness and femaleness and thus violates God's purposes in manhood. And again, such a caricature of John is most unfortunate. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, it's very, very clear there and in other texts that the effeminate and homosexual shall not inherit the kingdom of God. No, you see, John was a, was a son of thunder, a robust, vigorous man of the sea. In fact, he was a man that outlived all of the apostles He was uh, not a passive man, but an aggressive man, even to a fault, zealous, ambitious, unyielding. He was self-assertive traits that Jesus gradually brought into balance so that he could be used for his glory. By the way, isn't it interesting how often God takes our greatest weakness and turns it into one of our greatest strengths? That's what he did with John like his brother, the Lord had to shape him to, so that he could rule his emotions and also to replace his selfish ambition with humility. But I want to focus on another aspect of John that I find very helpful. The scriptures provide for us some remarkable insight into this tenderizing process in John's life. I want you to turn to the Gospel of Mark to see an example of this. Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. And the context here is that Peter, James, and John have just witnessed the amazing transfiguration of Christ. Notice the end of verse 2. And he, referring to Jesus, was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. The fascinating thought. Imagine this, folks. The Lord Jesus Christ peels back his flesh and he exposes the the resplendent light of his Shekinah and the very essence of God whenever he materialized himself. They saw it. It was right before their eyes. By the way, the word transfigure comes from a Greek word metamorpho. We get our word metamorphosis from that. And it has the idea of, of causing the inside reality of something to be manifested outwardly so that it becomes outwardly visible. In fact, in Romans 12, 2, we read uh, the same word there where it says that we're to be uh, transformed by the renewing of our mind. 
In other words, through the power of the scripture, through the truth of the word of God, believers can begin to manifest on the outside like a metamorphosis, like a um, like a um, a caliphater, as some of the kids call it, turns into a butterfly. All right. We begin to manifest on the outside who we really are on the inside rather than people seeing something that's not who we really are. And who we really are on the inside are people that have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ to glorify Christ. And so anyway, James and John and Peter saw this. And what's interesting, um, as he materialized himself before them, and they, they saw his majesty and his power, you know, a, a foretaste of their own glory someday. They must have been overwhelmed, and obviously they were. Notice what else the text says. If that wasn't enough, it says in verse 4, And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Can you imagine that? And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. So... This must have been a rare moment for these guys not to know what to say. All three of them standing there, absolutely in awe of what they were seeing. And if that wasn't enough, look at verse 7. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, folks, here's what's interesting. Such an experience, which would have certainly been terrifying as well as exhilarating beyond words, would make you want to do something. What, what's that? You'd want to go tell everybody, right? You, you would absolutely. You, I mean, it's like you could not wait to go and say, you're not going to believe what I just saw. Sit down. But it's interesting. God had different plans. Look at verse nine. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man should rise from the dead. Oh, my goodness. What does this mean? And they seized upon the statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead might mean. Now, folks, get the scene. They, they, they have just been absolutely blown away with what the Lord has shown them. And now they can't tell anybody until Christ rise, rises from the dead. Hmm. Now, remember, we are all as people, folks that like to believe what we want to believe, right? Sometimes it has no resemblance to what the truth is. We want to believe what we want to believe. Well, what did they want to believe? They wanted to believe that Jesus was going to set up the kingdom and that they were going to get to you know, reign with him. The Romans were out. Jesus was in. The earth was going to be renovated. I mean, they, they, they thought that what we know is going to happen at the second coming was going to happen now. So what's the stuff about rising from the dead? They didn't understand that. You see, they were convinced that they were on the inside track and that they were going to somehow get the chief seats in the kingdom. They were vying for that in their heart. And they must have thought, now, wait a minute, the Lord's only got a right and a left side. and There's three of us. I wonder which one, which guy's out. You know, those things had to have been going on in their heart and in their mind. And certainly this is what fueled all of this debate. I don't know who's going to be the greatest amongst us. By the way, may I digress again for a moment? Folks, every spiritual mountaintop experience has the potential to breed pride and elitism. Every great blessing has the potential to incite great arrogance within us. You know, it's much, much easier when something God does in our hearts that is, that is great and glorious, it's much easier for us to become proud than to become humble because of what has happened. So we need to guard ourselves against that. But notice what happens in later on in verses uh, 33 and following, given that context. And when they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? Now, folks, what we know from this passage and others, what they were discussing on the way is who's going to be first in the kingdom. All right. And, th and this reminds me of how uh, my kids used to be. Verse 34. Um, but they kept silent for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. In other words, many times, you know, you'd ask him, what, what were you just talking about? Mm, nothing. You know, 
That, that's what's going on. And then he does something, knowing what's in their hearts, knowing that he has to shape them. Notice, notice what he does. Verse 35. And sitting down, he called the twelve. Don't you just see the Lord? It's kind of like all of a sudden he goes over to a log sitting there and he says, guys, come here a minute. So he sits down and he says to them, if anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And taking a child, by the way, he was probably since he was in Capernaum and he was in in the house, which was been, been Peter's house, probably one of Peter's kids. He takes a child, he set him before them and taking him on his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Now, this is what is really fascinating. Notice what John says. Now, by the way. This is the only time in the synoptic Gospels where John is recorded to speak alone. The only time. Something remarkable now is occurring in John's heart as he just finished observing you know, what Jesus said and what he did. And again, Jesus didn't, didn't give him a thunderous rebuke, but a gentle rebuke. Look, look what happens here. John said to him, verse 38, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to hinder him because he was not following us. Now, why did he say that? Like, man, that looks like a non sequitur, doesn't it? Like, like, that doesn't fit. Where in the world did that come from? Well, folks, let me tell you. I believe that John was convicted over his elitism. John was beginning to recognize his ungodly proclivity to be sectarian. He began to see his bigotry and his narrow-mindedness and his intolerance. You know, us for no more, bar the door type of attitude. You see, he didn't suddenly change the subject. John saw what Jesus was saying and his heart was moved. And friends, I believe this was a confession. I believe he's saying, it's like, Lord, you know, we saw somebody casting out demons in your name. We tried to hinder him because he was not following us. Lord, that's a great example of what we're not supposed to do, isn't it? Verse 39, but Jesus said, do not hinder him for there is no one who shall perform a miracle in my name and be able soon Afterward, to speak evil of me, for he who is not against us is for us. In other words, what Jesus was saying and what John learned from this point, and, and uh, I, I'm sure he had other things to learn, and there were other examples where he had to learn more, but eventually we know he learned this lesson. He learned to humble himself. And he learned that the only legitimate tests for Fellowship or for examining another person's ministry is not which group they belong to, but the tests are always twofold doctrine and character, doctrine and fruit, if you want to put it that way. In fact, later on, John would write in first John four, one through three. Remember that whole section? He talks about how that we're to test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And he goes on to talk about how, uh, you know, we need to examine what they say about Christ and so on. That's the doctrinal test. And then also the fruit test in first John two, he wrote beginning in verse four, the one who says, I have come to know him but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. In other words, I, I don't care what somebody says. You know, if you don't do what Jesus says, you're a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word. In him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Friends, as you read his inspired writings, you will quickly see that John was a man that was passionate about the truth. He was very black and white, but it was always tempered with love. In fact, in his writings, you'll see that he used the word truth over 45 times and love over 80 times. You see, this great son of thunder had to be tempered. And you know what? It's okay to be a son of thunder as long as out of that thunder comes the gentle rain of love. You see, friends, truth without love is cruelty. It's Bible thumping. That's just wickedness. 
But by the same token, the other extreme is equally as bad. Love without truth is just mere superficiality. You see, John learned to speak the truth in love. There's nothing more sickening than the the saccharine sentimentality that you see so often in this, oh, we just all need to love God and all that type of stuff. And, you know, there's a place for that, obviously. But, folks, if that is not tempered with the truth, that is just mere hypocrisy. And by the same token, to have people, you know, try to open your mouth and cram a little Jesus down it, that's a wickedness that we need to avoid. It's a very, very wicked thing. Well, indeed, he repented of his selfish ambition that drove him to pursue that place of prominence. He learned well at the feet of Jesus. In fact, he undoubtedly learned it completely by the time he stood at the foot of the cross and watched his precious Savior die on his behalf. In fact, he is the only apostle recorded to have been there. You see, once John selfishly longed for a place of prominence to exalt himself, But Jesus graciously gave him a place of prominence in a very different way. A place that John would have never imagined. You will recall that the Lord allowed him to be banished to a small island off of the coast of Turkey. An island called Patmos. Where the wicked Roman emperor Domitian put him. And there he quietly suffered in a cave. He was required to sleep on a rock and to have a stone for a pillow. The beloved, it was there in that place of prominence from God's perspective that the Lord exalted him to a position that he would have never imagined. Because it was at that place that Almighty God and all of his heavenly hosts hosts witnessed John receiving the Apocalypsis Jesu Christu, the unveiling, the revealing of Jesus Christ. There was that place of prominence that God had for him just before the prominence that he now has in glory. And I want to remind you of what John wrote through the inspiration of the Spirit of God in that revelation. Revelation 1 and verse 10, we read, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now, mind you, he's an 80-year-old man now. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see. Later on in verse 12, he says, and I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the middle of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. Later on in verse 17, he says, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last Yes, dear friends, it was Jesus that appeared to him once again, appearing to the disciple whom Jesus loved. And there he applied the Old Testament name Yahweh, applied that name to himself. What an indescribable joy it must have been in the heart of that old apostle to see his Lord once again and then to have him reveal all the things that will occur before the Lord comes and as he comes and even thereafter in the millennial kingdom and in the eternal state. Tradition tells us that John became the pastor later of the church of Ephesus as a very old man and in his commentary on Galatians, one of the early church fathers, a man by the name of Jerome, tells us of this beloved apostle's final days. We read that he was such such a frail and weak man by this time that eventually he had to be carried into the church. And when he would come into the church, when they would carry him in, they said that he would be constantly saying, and I quote, my little children love one another. Folks, this was the son of thunder, remember? 
love one another. And when asked why he would say this so often, he replied, it is the Lord's command. And if this alone be done, it is enough. Beloved, even as Jesus shaped these two men into mighty warriors of the faith, please know that he can shape you and he can shape me as well. If we humble ourselves before his word. I leave you with these personal reflections that I'm sure you share. I stand in awe of all my sin. Selfish lusts reside within. Ne'er does a new day dawn, but what my heart more sin doth spawn. Yet by His grace and gift of faith, my sins forgiven, the debt erased, and slowly still my life He shapes, until like Him, my soul He makes. Let's rejoice in those eternal truths, knowing that God is a God of love, that by His truth will shape us into His glorious image. Let's pray together. Father, again, we praise you for the clarity of your word and we recognize how practical it is to us because we can all identify with these dear men that you chose to shape into your servants, into your emissaries that would spread the gospel of truth. And Lord, we see how you invested in them and how you multiplied yourself in ways that are beyond imagination. Lord, I pray that it will be the cry of each of our hearts to have you shape us as well. And we know that that will indeed happen if we have placed our faith in you. But Lord, we know that we must participate in our sanctification and work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. God, may that be the passion of our heart. And the Lord, finally, I pray for those who might be in our midst who know nothing of you as Savior. Maybe they've played that religious game, but they know in their heart that they really don't know who you are, that they really have no deep and passionate love for you, and that their life is the same today as it was years ago. Oh God, how I pray that you will make them miserable beyond words until they cry out to you as Savior. Lord, may they rush to the foot of the cross. May they confess you as Lord and experience that glorious miracle of the new birth. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.